0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the CX Goalkeeper podcast. Your host, Greg, will have smart discussions with friends, experts, and thought leaders on customer experience, transformation, and leadership. Please follow this podcast on your preferred platform. I am sure you will enjoy the next episode with the guest I selected for you. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight really Big, big pleasure because I have Bill Price and David Jaffe all together with me on the CX Goalkeeper podcast. They wrote outstanding book. And today we are here to discuss about their latest book, uh, The Frictionless Organization. I read the book and it's really outstanding. And it's a big, big pleasure now to have you both on the stage. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, David, for being here. Um, I would like to start the discussion as usual and in the same th- in the same way. I would quickly ask you to introduce yourself. And therefore, perhaps, Bill, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you, Greg. And thanks for the opportunity to meet with you today and to share what we've learned over the years about frictionless organizations. I'm Bill Price. I live outside of Seattle, Washington, on the west coast of the United States. Been here for a number of years. Um, Moved up here in the 1990s and eventually found my way uh, at Amazon.com, serving as the first worldwide VP of customer service. I have remained here since then, run a consulting firm called Driva Solutions, which is part of a nine country alliance with David and others. We call ourselves Linebridge uh,
0: as a a consortium. Thank you very much, Bailey. And David, please also your short introduction.
2: Thank you. Um, I'm David Jaffe. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia, uh, but originally British. Studied at Oxford, um, and then I spent all my career as a consultant, uh, which is almost shameful. But uh, I started with uh, Accenture, uh, and then moved to other strategy firms. And about 20 years ago, realised that I wanted to dedicate my career to working on customer problems um, and improving the customer experience, and hence set up Limebridge Australia. Um, and I also run something down here called the Chief Customer Officer Forum, where we bring executives together to talk about customer problems several times a year. Um, so and Bill and I have uh, had the great pleasure of working together now for nearly twenty years. So um, we've we've shared a lot of um, fun and uh, written three books together.
0: Thank you very much, David. And I. Th- can remember quite well that one of the core values of Accenture is best people. And there are others because I was also one uh, former Accenture. uh, But now I would like to learn a bit more about you. David, which values drive you in life?
2: I I like making a difference and helping people. Uh, And I think that's when, when I'm happiest getting up in the morning. Uh, to do consulting work because I think I'm going to make a difference and, I'm, and, and I think I'm going to make the company better and their experiences for their customers better. Um, so that's what really drives me. Bill, so I throw it to you?
1: Yeah, I think my personal values have to do with maybe two or three things, Greg. One is is honesty, to be honest uh, on your own, but also honest about the path that you take. And the second one is to challenge yourself and to challenge everyone around you. Uh, making sure that you make mistakes along the way, that's good, and then learn from those mistakes. But the second one, therefore, would be sort of to challenge and to perhaps get outside of your comfort zone along the way. The third one has to be fun. Uh, David and I have had a great deal of fun together. We've shared that personal value and twined over the years with our with our families as well. So I think fun is maybe a third one that I would go for.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I think th- these are great, great values that this C- CX community is is also sharing. But one question that I would like to ask is, uh, one based in Australia, the other based in, in the USA, how can you collaborate? <laughs> David, why don't you start with that one?
2: Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating over the years. For our first book, we did actually get together physically several times versus sort of like, you know, writing workshops and stuff. Uh, but I think, you know, I guess we were ahead of the curve um, of you know what COVID induced in people and now being able to work virtually, do Zooms. We've been doing that stuff for you know 15 years plus uh, with all the available mechanisms. And after a while, we found we were just so used to it, and we were so used to being a, a virtual network anyway that it, it really hasn't made much difference to us. So, you know, there, there's so many mechanisms that we can use in terms of sharing documents, Dropboxes, um, you know, SharePoint, all those all those things we can use to share things and collaborate. And I think what works well about having two of us working on, on a book and, and why we stuck with each other to do three is that you sort of, as Bill was saying, you challenge each other and you go, hang on, I, I promised I'm going to commit to getting this idea thought through and then handing it over. And I, And I think we... We work well as a tag team because we inspire each other and, and bounce off each other's ideas. Bill, over to you.
1: Yeah, I just, just very briefly on the mechanics. Uh, after we outlined the book, got approval from our publisher, we decided to write one chapter at a time. Uh, and, and we would meet, for instance, on Zoom and figure out what the outline for that chapter was, what we knew, what we wanted to learn about it some more. Then we'd go away. David would write one chapter. I'd write another chapter. We would then swap the editing back and forth. So that at the end you really couldn't tell who's who was the original author because it became quite uh quite joint uh and, and 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 common. And then we went through all of that uh uh as a as a team meeting every week. So we had Zoom calls every week, uh sometimes uh uh late night for me and early for David, sometimes the other way around. It worked out quite well.
0: Oh, I think that's the really interesting. I think the joke you already heard several times, I need also to say that do you still have or did you add some friction in your relationship
1: <laughs> you know i i think I think very little, which is interesting I, I it's funny you should ask that funny and and fun you should ask that now, I think because David and I have been working on these themes and and helping clients and 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 interviewing some great companies for so many years about this i I think there's been there's been very very little, would you say, david?
2: Well, that, that's typical American imperialism, right there. You know, he just he doesn't notice when when he has. Uh, it's frustrating me, but no, it's seriously. it's It tends to be more <laughs> about if it, if it's anything, it's about little bits of language that are different uh, in in maybe you know European English to uh, American English, and uh, and some terms that just you know s- sort of grated on me that I said no. So and I, so I would just you know, carefully delete it and put something in that I found acceptable. And sometimes they come back, <laughs> and, you know, this word would reappear because it's really, really important to build. Um, yeah, there's been, there's been some funny ones over the years. We should have written them down.
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I think we, we can really kick off the discussion and start the game speaking about the frictionless organization. I am a big, big fan of the value irritating matrix. I had also the pleasure to use it in the, in the uh, at my former employer to really understand what to do with different processes. And we had a lot of discussion. And now it's super interesting because the question that we asked ourselves now are answered in the latest, latest version in your book, The Frictionless uh, Organization, it's an outstanding Book. I really um, uh, enjoy it, and I recommend everybody listening to this podcast uh, to post this podcast. Quickly go to Amazon, buy this book because it's it's, it's really a lot of uh, interesting thing. But now we would also help the audience understand a bit better about this topic, and therefore perhaps starting with the first question, uh, David, what's your definition of friction?
2: Yes, it's so. Our definition of friction is any interaction. A customer has to have with a, an organisation that they didn't want to or need to have. Um, so we're not we're not counting as a friction someone logging on to a, a web app to to get their bank balance. That's something they want and need to do. Uh, but we are counting something where they say, "Where is my? Why haven't you? Or how does this work? Or all those things." Bill, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I I would frame it this way.
1: It's how we we attempted to put it. In place at Amazon many years ago when I was when I was there, as I mentioned earlier, it it's usually the source of confusion and mistakes. So when when you when you sum up friction, it really is where the, the customer is confused or mistakes were made that maybe sometimes the organization, the company didn't even know about, but the customer knows it, they realize it, and they come across with with questions like, why isn't this working? Why is this broken again? I can't understand. This came late. It didn't come on time. So these are, again, combinations of of uh, frustration uh, that, that relate to mistakes and confusion.
0: Uh, thank you. I, I think you mentioned several times that you worked also at Amazon, and you wrote another great book, The Best Service is No Service. <laughs> and my question uh, to, to you, Bill, is it's really the best service, no service, and why I'm asking this question, and I think you answered that several times, is sometimes it's the last opportunity that companies have to have a direct interaction with the with the customer, and if there is no service, there is no interaction. What's your view on that? Yeah. It's it
1: becomes what what we might call a slippery slope because uh, if if done well. A, uh, a a service interaction can resolve the issue the customer can be very happy and they can say good things about you to other companies or to their friends but if it doesn't go well it drops off very very fast it's like a like a deep drop off at the ocean and, and so there there is a theory called service recovery that says, wow, if we do a good job fixing the customer's problem, then the customer's more loyal. But what David and I have discovered and what the companies we interviewed have confirmed is that it's best to make sure things work so well and so smoothly they don't need to contact you at all. So sure, when there is a problem, have a well-trained, motivated, empathetic team to help you clearly do that. Um, most companies only stop there. Because what what we want to say is go beyond that and find out why that half why did that happen in the first place, and how can we remove the need for that uh, for that type of interaction?
2: Now, can, can I pick up from Bill um, that I had an interesting case study about this um, with a, a, an Australian business and at a conference, someone challenged me once and said, "You're wrong, David. You know the best service isn't no service because we get our highest. I think it was NPS. They were measuring scores on." Um, customers where we've they've had a problem we fixed it really really well mm-hmm. uh, and I was a little bit concerned though, because obviously you know there's a illogical argument that comes from that as Bill was saying well make more problems and make your customers happier I mean that, that sounds illogical but but fun enough a, a, a few months later I got to meet with one of the data analysts at that company and I said that was really interesting you know the fact that you get um, better satisfaction and net promoter um, scores from from Problems you fix. I said, "What about sort of customer loyalty?" And she said, "No, no, no, no. Our most loyal customers are ones that have never had to ring us at all." <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the executive who challenged me on this wasn't willing to reveal that statistic. Um, so, so I was very reassured by the fact that you know the the, the most important thing of all uh, was you know there were these customers who never had to call. And yes, funnily enough, they 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 measured. Net Promoter Score was lower, but in terms of customer value and all those things, uh, they were the ones that delivered.
0: I I think it's it's really interesting. And uh, Bill mentioned also about contacting a, a company, and a lot of companies are speaking, discussing, and I say dreaming about having a clear overview why the customer are contacting a company. Through the, through the app through the phone through all other channels like chat and so on but few companies are really able to track them uh, David what's your view on that because I think everything what you are defining starts from understanding why are this, are this interaction
2: yeah I, I, you're right it's always been a difficult problem um, I mean so historically we know that the companies have generally had um, their staff tag or Code codify the the contact and say it was one of these. Uh, often using drop down lists, and I think our record is in the thousands of you know how many different things they had to pick from. And of course they never did, and no one trusted it. Um, but the world has moved on, um, and I think now the, the the available tools to help you do that are very sophisticated through all kinds of analytics. Um, and not only can they can they get pretty good at that, and therefore take away the effort of frontline staff having to sort of help diagnose. And, and document, um, but they can also bring a whole variety of channels together for the first time, so now we can if we can analyze calls and we can do it in the same way as we can do chats and we, the same way we can do messages and emails um, suddenly we can bring a whole bunch of data together that used to be very discreet and separate um, so uh, the tool sets have made it easier um, and you know as we know those technologies are getting more and more sophisticated um, and, and so I think there's really no excuse for not understanding anymore. And worst, the other thing we always find fascinating is um, even, even if we're going to do it manually, or organizations have, um, have had other mechanisms available to them, like maybe they're, maybe they're assessing contacts for some kind of quality scoring or things like that. But they never even take the data out of that, which they could trust as a really good sample every month of you know why, why people make mm-hmm. contact. So there's, there's always been other mechanisms anyway. People just generally haven't exploited them. Bill, I don't know if you want to add to that.
1: No, I think that covers it really well. The companies just uh, either have too few reasons that they collect, like billing issues, and you'd have no idea what billing issues really means or what to do about it, <clears throat> or, as David said, so many different options, drop downs within drop downs, where the vast majority are never used, and the accuracy is is quite low. So we boil it down to what did the customer say in the first thirty seconds of the phone call? What did he or she put into their subject line or into the beginning of a of an email or opening up of a chat where it says, How can I help you? And generally that's what we call the reason. It's the reason or the intent for them to have made the contact. They they could say they could have five other issues that they talk about during the rest of the conversation. But the first one, the one that really prompted them to call in or contact the company, that's what we want to capture. And that's why analytics are so powerful because you can listen to the first 30 seconds of a phone call and pretty much understand why they contacted you for this purpose you at least know
0: where to start the uh, the analysis I think what you are saying it's really what we are facing. I was working in a contact center and we spent hours discussing about the granularity of these contact reasons and mm-hmm. all what uh, the topic that you mentioned. If a customer has several reasons, how to track them and how to to work on that. And as as you are saying, it's important it start to tracking in a way that it's understandable. And I think mm-hmm. when you have these contact reasons, then um, you are sharing a, a really interesting framework in in your books, not only the, the, the last one, but also the first one. It's about some um, context can be irritating for the company or for um for the customer or can generate value. Can you please explain that? And I know with uh, if we would have um, a diagram, it would be much more easier to explain that, but I think it's really a super s- simple concept, but it's it cre- it's, can really create the right discussion in the companies when we are discussing about digitalization and where to find efficiency or where to create value. And therefore, I stop because you are the experts. <laughs> Sorry, I get also excited, not only you, about this topic. <laughs> Perhaps, Bill, do you want to start about that?
1: Well, David, David, why, why don't you start on I'm going to give a couple of ex- examples uh, after you after you kick it off here.
2: Sure. So, so the framework, uh, Greg, you're talking about, we call the value irritant framework, where we, we think about from the customer's perspective, was the contact valuable or irritating? And from the company or organization's perspective, was it valuable or irritating? And, and when you put those, those two dimensions together, you end up obviously with four boxes. Um, so where it's irritating to both the company and the customer, we call that the eliminate quadrant. Because neither wanted this to happen, so those are obviously sources of great opportunity. Um, where it's valuable to the customer but irritating to the company, typically those are transactional things that lend themselves well to digital solutions or some form of self-service. Um, where it's um, valuable to the customer but irritating, sorry, irritating to the customer but valuable to the company, things that they just need customers to do, then we want to make those as simple as possible. So we call that typically simplify or streamline. Um, and then the one area we're left with that's valuable to both, typically those are the things we want to leverage. Those are often sales opportunities or uh, retention opportunities or opportunities that where the, where the um, company really thinks they can add value for the customer. Um, so, where, there's, this, there's the stuff we want to leave behind and we want to invest in. Um, and that doesn't mean they can't be digital as well because maybe maybe that's, you know, for some customers, that's that's the way they'd rather do it. Uh, they'd rather buy online these days, or they'd rather they'd rather um, you know, provide information some other way. So it just does, it doesn't exclude digital from any of those, um, but but it tends to lead to different conversations about what are what are our priorities. So, Bill, it sounds like you wanted to talk through some examples.
1: Yeah, just just maybe just a few examples so the audience understands where where we're coming from, and maybe they can they can. Uh, uh, Find out that they've they've asked these questions themselves. <clears throat> A good example of the irritating customer, irritating the company, are would be examples like, "Why is my bill so high?" or "Why did my internet service drop again?" Mm-hmm. or "Where's my stuff? I, I I waited for this product to arrive. You told me it was going to arrive today, and hasn't arrived. The, the deadline has come and gone." And and so quite a few of the irritating, irritating combinations, the one that we want to be eliminated and companies should eliminate, have contractions. It's like, why not? Why didn't this work? Uh, why can't you do this? Uh, the ones that are in the uh, positive or valuable for the customer but irritating for the company, that's where they really – Customers really would prefer a self-service solution or something in the digital world. And those David mentioned earlier, I'll just repeat it. Or might be like, "How can I do this? How do I do this? Where's your closest uh, depot to where I'm where I'm uh, living right now? Um, did you receive my 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 latest payment? Uh, how can I change my password? How can I change my credit card?" And so those are the vast majority of all the contacts and the costs associated with the contacts are ones that are in that lower left, meaning if, if you had the picture in front of you, the ones that are irritating to both parties or in the lower right, which is valuable for the customer, but irritating to the company. And digital solutions can go anywhere. But in terms of taking the action to digitize, we show as ones that are valuable for the customer, they need the answer, they want the answer, but they'd rather they're, they're fine with, with a well-functioning self-service tool.
0: Thank you very much it's it's really uh, interesting and and these are a great example um uh, one th- one thing that it's I think it's it's extremely relevant it's also you explained pretty well that there are different type the, of interactions and therefore perhaps they should also measure in a different way and before we deep dive in the measurement, I listened to several podcasts several presentations that you did bill and you spoke about uh, customer ecstasy. Could you please elaborate a bit on this on this concept?
1: Well, it's a funny expression to, to maybe some of the audience out there. But when I was at Amazon, that, that was that was the existing expression at the time. <clears throat> Amazon wanted to create and, and sustain customer ecstasy, meaning a, such a high level of loyalty that goes beyond just basic satisfaction. And, and we would go out of our way to fix a problem and to deal with the customer when they had the problem. But then we would back up and say, well... Gee, we, there shouldn't have been that call. We, we should not have had that customer contact. It's about a promotion, about a late delivery, uh, about a problem on the website. Uh, everything should, should have worked smoothly. Again, no confusion and no mistakes. And so ecstasy just meant to have something that is almost off the chart high. It was similar to Jeff Bezos' overall philosophy that he wanted Amazon to be Earth's most customer-centric company. I mean, he, he, I don't know how he came up with that idea or that expression, but he used it all the time. And it's one of those almost unattainable goals that got all of us to stretch and, and to push harder. So that, I think that's probably the concept of customer ecstasy. And ironically, in the day, we actually abbreviated it as CX. Now CX means customer experience. But at, when I see CX, it harkens back to the Amazon term, which was customer ecstasy. Anyway, it's uh it's it's a it's a it's, it's just a term. Every company has something like it. That's just one that, that I'm quite familiar with from working there.
2: Uh, Thank you. Interestingly, Greg, um we had uh, an Amazon ex- a recent Amazon executive talk at a, a a meeting we run down here. Um and he he said that that customer focus still provide um sorry, I've lost one second. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I lost my mic lost my microphone um <laughs> that customer focus still is there today um and uh, they think about they talk about customer before they talk about shareholder all the time mm-hmm. if they even talk about shareholders so it's interesting that that's, that still remains sorry that i had the duck off screen
1: no 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 that no. it, it, it it it's I, I still have a lot of good friends up here in seattle who work at amazon or maybe have recently left and and it's still such a strong part of the culture and the reinforcement. Um, and, and, and it it goes beyond again, just collecting data or collecting survey information. It just, it just permeates everything the way the company uh, does things.
0: Uh, It's, it's extremely interesting. And this measurement also help company to improve themselves because if you measure it, you can improve that. And also in your book, in in your book, you are explaining that you should uh, measure in different ways in these four different quadrants. Because if you create value for the company and you create value for the customer, perhaps how long it takes to have a call, it's not so relevant because if you generate value, then you should measure something uh, different. Bill, do you want to start? And then with the hand over to David.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges that we always see, one of the problems we always see is that there are too many speed metrics, too many pace and speed metrics in the contact center and the support industry. We have average handle time. We have speed of answer. We got all, all, all these things that we can capture and report so quickly and so easily, but, but they really are a problem when you have a frustrated customer or you have a great opportunity. So in, in most cases, we say just do away with any, any time limits on those conversations, especially if it's a frustrated situation, an irate customer, or if it is a case where the customer wants to buy something more from you or they, they are really intrigued with a new offer. So you have that conversation. We call that the leverage action. And so there are other metrics we'll get to. David may pick up the ball on this one or pass the ball to him on that one. But the idea is move away from those speed metrics uh, and and think about them not as averages but as as the entire spectrum uh, because sometimes you can talk you can spend too much time on a conversation or too little time but make sure you 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 spend the appropriate time and, and not some sort of a, a artificial uh limit so i'll pick okay. up on mine,
2: please, bill um so we start just with with a metric we we're surprised more organizations don't use. And we'd love to see it in every annual report of every company. And that's something we call CPX, where C is the volume of contacts um, divided by some key measure of the growth or amount of business going on. So, that could be contacts per flight for an airline, right? So, if you're doing more flights, you might expect to have more contacts proportionally, more. there's more chance of things going wrong or things not working. Um, so, that would be an, an interesting one because if you just measure pure volume of contacts, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's like, well, we grew 20% last year. So, did our contacts grow 20%? Is that the right outcome or not? So, it's a very mm-hmm. simplifying metric just to say, are we getting easier to deal with or not? But you also have to decide what to include in the, in the contact world. So, it's like we don't want to measure how often I choose to ch- check my balance uh, on my app. Right. We may, we may say, let's take that out because that's, that's not necessarily showing problems in any way, shape or form. Um, so it might be about the manned contact, the number of times I have to talk to somebody or get an email back or, or message or chat or or all those things. Whereas if, if the self service is working well, we may exclude that from the, from the measurement, but we need different measures for the self service. Like did people manage to get what they want done, done in the self service? Um, so again, it spins off different, um, opportunities.
1: Let me, let me just tag on that just briefly, Greg, if I can, which is the CPX is a really powerful metric, and we'll probably talk about it later in this discussion with you. But to give you a good example, we were working some years ago, maybe eight years ago, with a uh, uh, broadband provider, and they were providing uh, TV services, and internet to homes and offices. And at the time, they were using about eight or ten different set-top boxes uh, that would deliver the final signal to the to the screen. And, and that was very typical back then so when we work with them we we had them do a contacts per device what was the contact rate per device across these 10 or 12 different set top boxes and the, and the results were dramatic some of the boxes were very low rate of contacts some were very very high and increasing and and so they realized that they had too much inventory they had their, they had too many different devices so they wound up Removing almost all of their devices, they they bre- reduced it to two, a custom de- device that they that they really liked, and then one from a a, a well branded, well known company. So they reduced it from 12 devices down to two, which helped a lot on supply chain and, and and support. But they also did they made that decision by by lopping off by removing the ones that had a very high contacts per device, which they hadn't really seen before. So breaking down those totals in those totals and averages into individual. Uh, in this case, uh, devices can be very powerful, uh, and as David said, you can look at contacts per order, contacts per uh, flight, contacts per customer, but that CPX starts to normalize all of it, especially if you're growing fast over time. Uh, if a company's going fast, it starts to show whether, whether you really got a healthy uh, direction. So you want CPX to go down in general and you want it to stay down as as, as the company continues to grow.
0: I think that that's totally makes sense and it helps also to steer the. the- the development also of products to ensure the quality of these products not having yes. um, service service issues, and I think this is also something important that I would like to discuss with you. are expecting always personalized service. How do you integrate this requirement from the customer that it's now really here and everybody expect? I mean, individual I want to be. Um, I want to have a personal service in in your value written um, framework. Perhaps David, do you want to start?
2: Yeah, um, I think the first thing we find a lot of organizations are not doing is allowing the customer just to to tailor the way they want to interact. Mm-hmm. So very very few organizations we work with in Australia anyway give you the choice about when, when you do get a message about this or an update about that, how would you like to receive it? Um, and, and so that's a form of personalization that's you know, pretty basic, but we find many organizations don't even enable that. Um, so we'd kind of start there in terms of saying, as, particularly as we're now we'll talk later about it, we're, we're now in, we're now reaching out and being proactive more often out to the customer. But we, it tends to be about well, we'll tell you the way we, the organisation, want to tell you, mm-hmm. right? Rather than trying to find out from the uh, from a personalised perspective, well, how, how do I want to see this information, or even what do I want to see? Um, so you know, giving um, customers a palette of. Do you want to be notified about this, how often, when, through what mechanism? That's a great form of personalization as a start. Bill, do you want to go next?
1: Yeah, I'll flip it around from, from the outbound, as you mentioned, to the inbound. Hmm. If uh, if a customer has um, a very high value to the organization, then that should be recognized in, in some form or another. Perhaps they, they can bypass certain steps uh, they may be serviced by a more senior customer service representative. They may be offered something a little differently than than another than than that's called the average customer. Uh, on the other hand, if if a customer has very frequently contacted the company, a really high contact history, it might represent uh, a special opportunity to hold on to them, because maybe that's the beginning of them leaving the organization, leaving the company, canceling contracts and accounts. And so if you look at contact frequency and history, that can also set up a different type of personalization, or at least recognition that there may be some problems in the past. Uh, and then if you have a brand new customer who's never contacted you before, maybe they just signed a deal, they signed a contract, they just they just landed, a, they bought a new new piece of software from you and, and they're calling you up for the first time or contacting you for the first time. What we found is that those customers need to be handled very delicately with additional information and support or else they're going to wind up having to contact you multiple times. Uh, and probably create a lot of friction and, and frustration. So there are lots of ways to do that on the inbound side to recognize customer value, customer frequency, uh, and so forth, and, and then be able to handle
0: them in different ways. Thank you, Billy. It's, it's it's extremely interesting. And you are already um, suggesting or preparing also for the next question because uh, you mentioned also at the beginning um, there are different contact reasons. It can be 10, 100, or 1,000 contact reasons. Often they are linked to processes And um, if you read the book, then you start, okay, I want to do that. I want to implement that. And then you start classifying all these processes and say, this should be simplified, this should be eliminated and so on. But then in reality to implement that, it takes quite a lot of time. And therefore my question, or do you have also some suggestion from the cultural aspect, from the cultural point of view, what can companies do to steer and stick to this framework in order really to achieve uh, effortless, uh, sorry, frictionless experiences? Um, David, do you want to start?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, we do think that this way of thinking can contribute to building a culture that focuses on the customer. Because fundamentally it's a, it's a whole of business problem um and h- historically uh, many organizations have have said to the head of customer contact or customer care you know, why aren't you picking up the phone faster or why are your calls taking too long or why have you got more emails or all those things and, and it's not their fault because generally those as we've talked about the interactions are coming from other problems it's like it's it's the the guys distributing the product or the guys manufacturing the product or even the guys designing the product um, that are causing a lot of these issues. So what what we think this is a great opportunity to do is once we understand it, it, it everybody has to be around the table, talking about and owning these problems, um, and, uh, and and so it can bring the whole of an organisation together on culture on on customer issues and create that sort of customer culture. We've we've hinted at in a couple of businesses, um, and we do interestingly in the in the book we talk about what well, we think it's interesting. Um, we talk about uh, innovators or, or younger, newer businesses uh, versus renovators, com- organizations who've been around for a long time. Uh, and obviously, they have more legacy in terms of the way they work, the complexity of systems and products. But the innovators often think like this. Uh, and so, we, you'll find in the book that a lot of the examples we talk about are companies like an Uber, who's always you know tried to be a completely digital business. And therefore, any time interaction pops up that isn't what they're expecting and wanting, they're all over it. They want they want to find out what, what can we do to get rid of that, and they realize that isn't you know they realize that's a shared problem that that everybody in the company has to come together um, to work on. Bill, you you probably should go from there.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think culture is is at the core of so many things about strategy, and making strategy work, and make business work. Um, <clears throat> it 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 almost shouldn't be said, but it needs to be said that CEO and other exco. SLT senior leadership team needs to be much more involved in what these customer issues are, uh, listening to calls, uh, getting into what the customer uh, frustrations really are, looking at results from uh, from the metrics that we've been talking about so far, looking at CPX rather than just looking at volumes, and and when that happens, when when that happens, it, it's like uh, lights go on. The senior executives go, wait a minute now, are we really causing those problems? I can't believe the customers are, are are encountering that. And I we're lucky that they're contacting us. You know, and let's talk about how we can fix that. Um, when when we encourage executives to listen to calls, let's say over a two-hour period, they come away with about 20 things that they can fix. Because from their level, they know how products or services are designed or how they the uh the pricing plans have been put together or what the billing system looks like. And so the culture of starting from the top and getting them to reinforce it will make it so much easier for the organization to sort through all the priorities. And implementation does take time. So it's got to be done one step at a time, Uh, look at some success, celebrate that success and see the improvements over
0: time. Thank you, Bill. And um, it, it was really a great discussion. I still have one question, perhaps not related to, to the book, but I would really like to, to learn from you because if I remember well, you wrote The, the Best Service is No Service uh, more than 10 years ago in 2008. And it's roughly 20 years ago. And my question is, in 10 years from now, we are on the CX Goal Keeper podcast. You are always mm-hmm. welcome if you want to join again. <laughs> and uh, we are discussing about customer experience. What we are discussing about, Bill, do you want to start? I think we'll be discussing about the uh, the, the failures and the successes
1: of AI uh, and and how AI has uh, enabled some improvements, but it's also frustrated and created friction for a lot of customers because it hasn't been trained or tuned up uh, adequately enough to, to help customers. Uh, So AI and machine learning are very, very hot. The topic will continue to get very hot. Companies will flock to it and say, oh, let's just use AI. Let's just digitize everything. So I think in 10 years' time, we might be unraveling some of that. We might be saying maybe we should not be using as much of that new technology, uh, technology that is now 10 years old when we talk about AI, but rather get back to the personal touch where that's appropriate.
0: Thank you, David. And David, what's your view? 10 years out. Yeah, I, I hope... I hope
2: we'll be talking about what do we do next, <laughs> right? That, mm. that we've got our contact rates down so low, and it's all working so well. Um, you know, wh- wh- where are our next opportunities? And, and in some ways, I'd expect them to be getting harder, right? right? That we've done the easy stuff, right? Right. and and our products now arrive on time because the drone delivers it so quickly, and it's all automated, and that all works. But now we, i don't expect though we've we've found some new problems. But for mm. start, we may find some customers left behind because we're not all adopting technology at the same rate. Um, so in terms of that personalization, I, I'd expect that we'd be discussing tough issues like what do we do for those those customers, the ones who aren't prepared to work this way, enough, or do we want them as customers even? So there's going to be some tough questions mm-hmm. um, that are different to those we've we we work on today but but i hope we really have moved on and we are making it better because one of the dangers bill, bill talked about ai um, you know even with some of the robotics and chatbots and things we have today is sometimes c- companies are willing to take the what i call the easy road and say oh well that automates 20 percent of the interaction so that's great the business cases are overwhelming and it's fantastic and they're ignoring the 80 percent who it fails for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's what we're gonna have to have some tough discussions about is that okay is it okay now maybe, maybe we get to 50 50 it works for 50%, but it fails for 50%. Are we happy to fail 50% of the time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and how can we make that? If we are, how can we make that as painless as possible? Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, failing is, so, so you're going to frustrate 50% of people, put them through the experience that largely doesn't work. You know, that's an interesting equation. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to be having some, some tough discussions at times.
0: Yes, and I will be delighted because there will be a new version or the next book of Bill Price and David Jaffe that I will read. But now we are coming to to the end of this game, and in the extra time, in the last three to five minutes, I have some. I still have some question for you. Um, perhaps uh, starting with you, David. Is there a book, one book that you say it stands out? It tell me during my career or during my personal life that you would like to suggest to the audience.
2: Um, yeah, there was, uh, one one book I've never forgotten is a book by, by uh, a guy called Daryl Connor about uh, I think it's called Managing the Speed of Change, um, and he talked about different models of change and how they affect people. Um, and the the negative change I think people all understand well. There's been well researched or how you react to that, but he also talked about positive change and things that can happen with that. And I've never forgotten that model. And, and so um, I'd always, if people don't know that. Some of those frameworks and that model,
0: I'd always recommend it. Thank you very much. And Bill, what's well, your
1: the suggestion? book that sticks with me? The book that sticks with me goes, goes way, way back as well. And it's called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. Uh, the author's last name is Hirschman. Uh, very thin book, very easy book. It talks about public policy and and a number of different things, not necessarily corporate ex- corporate business. But when you think about those three different words, customers can either leave, they can exit. Um, they can express their voice. They 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 can express their frustrations with the voice, or they can remain loyal or become loyal. So I, I've used that book quite often. It's it's dog eared behind me in my bookcase, uh, and it's one that I that I refer to uh, quite often and, and and recommend, even though it's been around for probably forty years or something, thirty or forty
0: years. Thank you very much. And perhaps um, I think from this discussion, some people will have um, will have some question for you, Bill. What's the best way to contact you?
1: Um, I think the best way, my my I'm actually getting my website back up and running in about a month. So until that comes up, uh, my email address, bill at Drivasolutions.com, would be the best way. And then David and I have written, have produced a a website for the book uh, called frictionlessorg.com. So that's
2: another place to be able to reach out to us too.
0: Thank you. And David, what's the best way to contact you?
2: My, my email address is David underscore Jaffe at Limebridge, L-I-M-E-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com dot au. So I'm more than happy to receive people's emails and, and talk to them from there.
0: Thank you very much. And you will find also all this information in the contact notes of this episode. But please take a moment to have a look at the two books, at least two that I have. The frictionless organization. The best service is no service. You can buy them in Amazon, and I think both are worth it to read and to reread and to reuse. They are here always with me, and if I need to check something, I can check that. Now we are coming truly to, really to the very last question of this discussion. It's um, let's start with Bill. It's Bill Bill's golden nugget. It's something with that we discussed, or something new that you would leave to the audience.
1: Well, we, we've discussed some of the things that, that I'd thought about to, in answer to this question before, but I'm going to bring up a new one. It's in the book, but it's a new one for this, this discussion, which is uh, ask yourself, what should we do with the customers that never contact us for help? Uh, and and those that ratio will vary based on your organization and the maturity of your customers and the company, but we'll say that it could be more than 50% of your customers never bothered to contact you at all for support or with questions. Some companies say, well, those must be happy customers. They don't need to contact us. But we would suggest that maybe they are not happy, that they are what we might call in the book silent sufferers who could be beginning to leave your business. Uh, they just don't bother to contact you anymore. or Maybe they never even bothered at all. So figure out how to reach out to those customers who never contact you, maybe even literally reach out to them and call them up and say, hey, haven't heard from you for a while. Greg, how you doing? And Greg might be really shocked because he might say, well, actually, everything's fine. Or he might say, you know something, let me tell you, I got these five problems and, and maybe you can fix it. and Maybe you can keep me around. So that, that, that's what I would
0: suggest. Thank you very much, Bill. And what's David's golden nugget?
2: Uh, I think the customer experience industry has become obsessed with asking, how did we go? Uh, but I feel like we need to step back from that before we, we, before we have the right to ask that question. We need to ask, why did they have to? Uh, and so that's my golden nugget, is, is to be thinking much more about why did this have to occur? Not asking necessarily the customer, because again, that's putting them to more work, um, but asking ourselves, why was that necessary? And do we have to, sh- should we even be asking the customers, how did we go? Because there's a more fundamental question about why did we have to?
0: Thank you very much, David. I think uh, the audience really feels that you are a great team. You are, were passing the ball in a perfect way. Uh, I would say frictionless. And therefore, the only thing that I can say is, Bill, thank you very much for your time. And David, thank you very much for your time.
1: Pleasure. Our pleasure, Greg. And continue good luck with uh, CX Schoolkeeper.
0: Thank you very much. And also to the audience, I hope that you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. It was really uh, enlightening. It was great for me after reading the book several years ago, now having the opportunity to speak with two experts, the guys that wrote this book that I really enjoyed and we discussed a lot also during business hours. Thank you very much. Let us know your feedback. Contact Bill, David or myself. Happy to share all the information that I have on the value, value return framework. Thank you very much. Have a nice evening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the word of mouth, subscribe it, share it. Until the next episode, please don't forget we are not in a B2B or B2C business, we are in a human to human environment. Thank you.